The Guardian. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, the simplest, most powerful website creator that helps you make headlines with your own stunning online presence. Explore elegant templates, Getty image integration, and more at squarespace.com and use the code Guardian to get 10% off. We hate alien species almost more than we hate alien humans. You know, it sort of parallels a sort of green xenophobia. What is important is to have an intelligent relationship with the nature that we coexist on this planet with. Something is changing the way our genes behave. And microbes offer a great way of understanding how that might happen. The alien species, they can revive ecosystems. Seen examples in Puerto Rico where the mangoes or the grapefruit are now reforesting the island. We can change the way we live, we can change the decisions we make, and that can help us to develop a healthy microbiome that improves our overall health. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast with me, Richard Lee. This week we're tackling invasions with two science writers who, in very different ways, are exploring the aliens in our midst. But what are we trying to defend? The environmental writer Fred Pierce argues in The New Wild that we're too worried by the threat of incoming species, that the idea of a pristine natural world is a dangerous myth. The biologist Alana Collin comes closer to home with the mind-bending observation that 90%, yes, 90% of the human body isn't human at all. When Colin and Pierce came to the studio, Claire Armistead began by asking about our inner wildlife and how it can be that there are ten times more bacterial cells in our bodies than our own. So it's about 1.5 kilos at any one time is microbes, so that's about the same as your liver. But the number of cells, we have about 100 trillion microbes, mostly living in our guts, compared to our 10 trillion human cells. I described it as wildlife, but I mean, these microbes, what are they exactly? Well, they're mostly bacteria. At least they're the ones that we know most about. There are also viruses and a group called the archaea, which are similar to bacteria in the way they look and behave, but actually very different evolutionarily. And then there are some fungi in there as well. So it is an ecosystem of sorts. I mean, it is an ecosystem, but uh, it's just a different one from the kind of terrestrial and um, aquatic ones that we're used to. What made you want to explore this? I had some trouble with my own health. So I'm an evolutionary biologist and I used to study the evolution of bats. And in doing that, I spent a lot of time in jungles and I was bitten by a lot of ticks. And that led me to get an illness which was treated with huge quantities of antibiotics over quite a long period of time. I then started to notice some other symptoms that I was suffering from. So I suddenly developed hay fever, having never had it before. I had terrible acne and I started to get lots of infections, which I'd never had before. And I wondered whether I had disrupted my good bacteria. At that point, all I knew was that we have some friendly bacteria living in our guts And I started to look into it and discovered that there was this whole new world of science opening up over the the past 5, 10, 15 years that was suggesting that the microbes in our guts were actually intimately involved with our health. 
and we're contributing to the incredible rises we've seen in various conditions from allergies through autoimmunity to mental health problems and even obesity and autism. So I felt that I'd stumbled upon something really interesting and I just wanted to know more. I was working on another book at the time, but I couldn't draw myself away from reading about microbes. So I ended up thinking I'll write a book on this instead. How can a microbe change our mental health? It's incredible, isn't it, to think that it could. But these microbes convert the food that we eat into all sorts of different compounds. And some of the compounds that they convert it into are the same as our neurotransmitters. So the compounds that we have, that our bodies produce, to influence our emotions and our moods and our behaviour. So, for example, if you look at mice who have no microbes in them, they're, they're germ-free because they've been born in isolation and kept in isolation, they are extremely anxious. But if you give mice a normal set of gut microbes, then in experiments to measure their levels of anxiety, they appear to be far less anxious. And in fact, they produce lower levels of stress hormones. And then that translates over to humans as well. So we can see differences in the gut microbes of people with depression, and particularly in children with autism, they appear to be influencing the way that children's brains develop and the processes that underlie memory and social interaction and so on. The autism question is very interesting because it's been a very politically vexed area, hasn't it? I mean, are you actually suggesting that some of the controversial research that's been debunked around inoculation no. is, it was actually accurate? No, we're not there yet. And it is a very controversial area. It's very difficult for people to get the money to do research because it's so controversial. What seems to be emerging is that there's another avenue that we can explore. So there's been a big focus until now on the role of genetics in autism. But unfortunately, genetics can't explain everything about autism because there's been this huge rise. So in the 1950s, we think that maybe one in 10,000 children had autism. And now we're looking at one in 68 children, one in 68 eight-year-olds in America is on the autistic spectrum. So we need something that can change rapidly to explain that. And genetics doesn't work like that. Something is changing the way our genes behave. And microbes offer a great way of understanding how that might happen. So microbes could be influencing the development of children's brains and if we take into account that we're changing our microbes through changes in diet through our use of antibiotics particularly in childhood and in pregnancy and also changes to the amount that women breastfeed and the number of people that are giving birth by cesarean section then these things collectively may add up to an increased risk of of autism it's not proven and it's a hypothesis that there's a lot of work going on to unravel, uh, but it's very interesting and promising. You have some lovely anecdotes, and in the case of autism, you've got this heroic mother who, who was actually determined that her little boy's development of autism was connected with an ear infection. Yeah. Tell us about her. Yeah, that's right. So this is a lady called Ellen Bolte in America, whose son, as a toddler, was diagnosed with lots of ear infections and was given antibiotics repeatedly to try and cure these ear infections. And whilst on the antibiotics, he started to behave strangely. And the, behave the strange behaviour escalated until he was finally diagnosed with autism. And Ellen Bolte was convinced that this hadn't always been the case, that he hadn't been born with autism, that he had had a healthy childhood and then had developed the autism. And she felt that it was in connection to 
the antibiotics that they had given him. So she started to do a lot of research into the area and she discovered links between a bacterium called Clostridium tetani, which causes tetanus. And she believed that Clostridium tetani in the gut was causing the release of a neurotoxin, which was, um, had initiated her son's autism. So she wrote a hypothesis-based paper, not an evidence-based paper, and that led to another scientist um, investigating whether giving children antibiotics might influence their autistic symptoms. And it was a very small experiment, but it did show changes in their behaviour that were quite dramatic. And she wasn't proposing antibiotics as the sole cause and nor, nor as a cure for autism, but just trying to get an understanding of whether gut microbes could be involved in the development of autism. And she came up with some sort of temporary cure, didn't she? But it didn't last. So there's exactly. sort of, it's quite a sad story. Isn't yeah, it? so she, she used antibiotics for her son under the guidance of a doctor. And that changed his behaviour enough for her to be able to help him learn a few words and toilet train him at the age of four. But unfortunately, every time the antibiotics were discontinued, then his behaviour returned to its previous state. And he couldn't live on antibiotics for the whole of his life? No, and it's just not feasible to live on antibiotics forever because they have other side effects and consequences. So. And there were other children did the same regime and had the same results? Yeah, I think there were 11 or 12 other children that went through a trial of the same thing, which was really a proof of concept. Can antibiotics change the gut microbes and change the behaviour of autistic children? And that showed that it could, and that's led to... So her work, even though she was not trained as a biologist, has led to this field opening up for other people investigating gut microbes and autism. Well, let's park you now for a few minutes and move on to the external world. And Fred, the new wild, why invasive species will be nation's salvation. Now, in my local park recently, they were exterminating a small silver fish. And we're quite zealous, aren't we, all over the world about exterminating alien invaders? We are. We hate the aliens. We hate alien species almost more than we hate alien humans. You know, there, there are sort of parallels, a sort of green xenophobia. You see it everywhere. Every US state has an anti-invasive species program. They're seen as inevitably destructive. Uh, you know, by definition, by default, they're a problem. And this is a sort of global sort of pandemic phobia, really, of alien species. And my argument is that, A, we've got this well out of proportion, and B, that alien species are often really rather good, especially if we want ecosystems, natural habitats to recover from damage that humans have done. If we've chopped down the forests, if we've poisoned the land, that kind of thing, if we built cities across areas, often it's the alien species, or let's call them something more positive, the go-getter species, the colonists, the vagabond species, the outsiders, and rather like humans coming in from outside and reviving neighbourhoods, they can revive ecosystems. So I think they're part of the solution to the eco ecological problems that humans have created in the last century or so, not part of the problem. Give us an example. Well, I went to uh, Ascension Island in the South Pacific, where virtually everything, to be honest, is alien. And there, there's a whole rainforest that's developed there in the last 200 years, a whole ecosystem 
based on a random collection of tree species brought in by sailors, uh, British sailors coming back from the colonies. Because there was nothing much there, they wanted to plant trees, and they planted trees um, and didn't think much more about it. They thought it would green the place a bit. But these trees have taken over and created a really diverse uh, accidental rainforest, if you like. Seen examples in Puerto Rico where the farmers destroyed the initial forests and the forests are now regrowing and the trees that are coming back are not the native species, they're the foreign species, they're the African tulip tree or the, the mangoes or the grapefruit. The trees that just people planted in their back garden are now reforesting the island. Um, all over the world you see the same kind of thing. Alien species as a success story after all, these are nature's successes. These are nature's go-getters. They are the species that can colonize, can take over, can therefore revive areas that have been damaged by humans. So I think we've got aliens all wrong. But there can be some sort of pretty horrific examples, can't there? Sort of giant mice and killer ants, which completely... Yes. disrupt ecologies. Oh, in, in small ecosystems, some small islands, you're quite right, Gough Island, not far away from Ascension in the South Atlantic, super mice hopped off whaling ships a century or so ago. They evolved to a super size, and they're now eating their way through the seabird colonies, which all live on the ground because there are no trees. So I'm not saying that there are never any problems, and problems for human activity, problems for agriculture and forestry. And, you know, I mean, we know all about those stories, about the problems that are created. What I say is that in the big picture, as far as nature's concerned, I mean, nature doesn't really care about individual species. Nature cares about sort of dynamic revival. You see, these are, these are the dynamos. This is the dynamic force of nature. This is evolution happening, actually. If we want evolution to happen, evolution to keep rolling on, keep doing things and keep reviving nature, sometimes against all the odds with human activity, it is these species that are part of it. Charles Darwin loved alien species because he saw them not as damaging uh, the successes of evolution, but as part of evolution, they're the next phase of evolution. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace. When it's time to create a website for whatever's newsworthy in your life, whether that's a small business, online store, professional portfolio, or just a blog, go to squarespace.com and use the offer Guardian to get 10% off. But there's something that goes very against our sort of consensus isn't there, of what should be allowed to survive. We're very geared up to trying to enable everything to survive. And mm. it's, it almost seems a bit fascistic that these, you know, giant bully mice should come in and totally change the seabird ecology. Or, I mean, obviously, that's not a particularly good example. Well, there, there are horror stories, as you say, but I think it's quite fascistic to want to exterminate all the aliens um, in the same way that it would be if you, if you were trying to marginalise or push out humans that were coming in. As I say, I think it's not that they never cause any problems, but they are, in the big picture, part of the solution. And, I mean, we give honorary native status to an awful lot of species that are alien, which we rather like. Like grey squirrels. Like grey squirrels. Well, you know, we, we have an ambivalent really. relationship with grey squirrels, but the thing about grey squirrels is that they survive best in native woodlands, whereas the red squirrels, which are undoubtedly native, survive best in alien conifer forests. So I'm not sure how you deal with that. We have problems with wild boar. Are they a returning native, in which case all the laws say we should be encouraging them, or 
because they came from Europe and were put in farms and escaped from those farms in the sort of mid-20th century, does that make them an alien? It's a silly argument, really, as, as to whether you think of wild boars as aliens or natives, and they're the same animals. But how, depending on how you define them means that legally, whether you should be exterminating them or encouraging them is completely different. But think about the rabbit. Everybody loves the rabbits. It's, you know, um, if, if rabbits have a problem, we, you know, we want to encourage them, revive them, and we're very, we like rabbits. Rabbits are, are an alien species. They were brought in for farming about a, a thousand years ago, and they were let loose when we didn't want um, rabbit fur and rabbit meat anymore. And now they're kind of honorary natives. The primrose came from Brittany 400 years ago. Horse chestnut even. You know, we think of that not much more native in an English village than the horse chestnut, that too and now it's is a foreign species. And now it's being destroyed by another alien, which is the minor moth, isn't it? Well, that's right. That's right. <laughs> um, aliens will often eat aliens, that's, that's for sure. That's one of the things you see. But this, this is nature moving on. This is, you know, we can't be too precious. A lot of ecologists have this idea that, if you like, pristine, perfect nature is something to be protected as it is, and it should be unchanging. And there are whole sort of theories about ecology of that some people seem to think that ecology and evolution develop sort of perfect states of ecology. And having reached that perfect state, it's the job of conservationists to protect that, you know, come hell or high water. But there's a new generation of ecologists who don't see ecology that way at all. When you look at ecosystems, they're constantly evolving and changing, whether to do with humans or just perfectly naturally. Species are coming in and out, species are going. You know, it's constantly in flux. And the argument really is that the dynamism is what nature's about, and it's the dynamism and the change that we should be trying to protect, rather than a sort of strange idea of, um, of a, a sort of perfection, which is always in the past. So we have these sort of Arcadian ideas about nature and constantly want to go back to that. But if we've got climate change, how do we think that species are going to respond to climate change other than by moving? The climate zones move around, they're going to follow. And if we start defining every movement as a problem, I don't really think we're going to help nature deal with climate change. We're going to stifle its ability to adapt to climate change. So at the base of both these books is is an idea of ecology, isn't it? You have the ecology of the body, which Mm -hmm. involves lots of organisms, and you have the ecology of nature. Do you see connections between your books, or are you such specialists that that actually there is no No, common ground? I can certainly see a connection in the element of dynamism, because the human microbiota is able to adapt to the circumstances that a human finds itself in, and that's extremely useful. So, for example, in Japanese people, you often find microbes which have genes that help the body break down seaweeds, and they've acquired those genes. The microbes in their bodies have acquired those genes from microbes that live on seaweeds and eat seaweeds as their way of making a living. And so it's beneficial to people who eat a lot of sushi with its seaweed element to acquire those new species and those new genes. On the other hand, you could have invasion by a species that's not so beneficial. So something like Clostridium difficile, if that gets into people's guts and if there's already disruption to the gut through perhaps taking antibiotics, then the C. diff, as it's known, could take hold and cause major problems. And one of the ways to oust that is to do a faecal transplant, which involves putting microbes from a healthy person 
back into the gut. The poo of a healthy person. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) Putting that back into the gut of a person suffering from C. diff because the microbes in that poo can re-establish a dynamic ecosystem that can force out the C. diff. And you had a a faecal transplant. No, I haven't had one. You haven't had one. And that's used for quite extreme cases, presumably. At the moment, it's primarily used for this condition, C. diff, because there's huge amounts of evidence that it works. So giving people with C. diff antibiotics cures about 25% of those people. Giving them a faecal transplant cures about 90 or 95% of those people. So that's endorsed by NICE, the government's um, regulator, and is used officially in Britain. There are lots of people who are interested in using it for other things. For example, it could potentially help people with obesity and type 2 diabetes to reverse to a lean state and a, and a healthy metabolic state by replacing the microbes that are contributing to their obesity with microbes that would encourage leanness. Well, microbes that encourage leanness, Fred. (laughs) (laughs) This story about dynamism, I think, is at the heart of it. This idea that nature is constantly changing, constantly evolving, constantly reacting to the world around and of course microbes evolve faster than any other species just because you know the generations come along so quickly so microbes are one of the most dynamic elements in the whole system and that it creates problems for us there's no doubt about it and perhaps we increase the problems when we're moving species around the world in our you know in our rucksacks or in our ballast water or whatever it may be the globalization of trade is undoubtedly moving more species around the world and some of those are a problem for us and some of those are not and we we have to recognize that and in saying that i'm in favor of alien species i'm certainly not saying that there aren't circumstances where we need to respond to what we see. If, you, you know, if you've got a bug working its way through uh, a forest, then you want to do something about it, and that's perfectly reasonable. What I don't think it is, is um, helping nature in the big picture. This is not really, this is about helping ourselves and our society, and sometimes, as, as you say, our, our own bodies to react to change going on. But nature kind of, you know, has another narrative. Nature is just about moving on, and and, uh, it's been quite good at it. You know, it's been going about four billion years, so I think it's quite clever. So, you know, we have to have an intelligent relationship with the natural world, but I don't think we should be trying to cut ourselves off from it, as some people seem to want to do, or to have a very kind of divided relationship with it. I mean, I don't think we should be trying to preserve the past. We should be recognising that nature and humanity work together. What is so fascinating is that, you know, all the talk at the moment is about us entering the being in the Anthropocene in which nature is totally subjected to human needs and will. And yet here you're telling very different stories, both of you in your way. Nature nature is fighting back. Um, We might like to think that nature is subjected to our our needs, and it's certainly true that human influence is is universal around the world. There are no pristine rainforests, for instance. I mean, they were all, you know, chopped down by humans long ago. They're all regrowth. There is nowhere that is not strongly influenced by human activities and, of course, climate change now. What is important is to have an intelligent relationship with the nature that we coexist on this planet with. Anthropocene, I think, is it's, yes, it's a new phrase that we're talking about a lot more. And that encapsulates, I think, for me, the Anthropocene is not a sort of one-way trip to disaster. It's about a new relationship 
that we are going to have to think about between humans and nature. And it's a rather pragmatic one. It's not an ideologically driven one. It's not driven by perfect ideas of creating or maintaining or reviving perfect ecosystems. It's about having an intelligent relationship with a very, very dynamic environment in which we live. Dynamism which could be bad sometimes, sure, but is also can be and is good and is the basis for how nature survives on this planet. I'm really interested in who reads these books. Alana, who do you imagine the reader of your book is? Is it a, a mother who's very anxious about some sort of health issue in her family? Is it professional scientists? Well, it's, it's interesting because it's a science-based book, but it has such relevance to everybody we're talking about illnesses that affect huge numbers of people. So allergies, which affect maybe four in 10 people and obesity now in the UK affects around 65% of people are either overweight or obese and autoimmune diseases, which incredibly affect 10% of us. So it's actually relevant to a huge number of people and parents, absolutely, because we now know that we get these microbes from our mums when we're born and that they're nurtured by breastfeeding. And so parents should have a huge interest in knowing how they can bring about a a lovely, healthy microbiota in their children's guts. You mean there's a self-help element in it? There is a self-help element, yeah. It's scientific, but it's very accessible and it's it's quite easy. The beauty of this, this microbiome revolution is that unlike the genetic revolution, we can do something about our microbes. So as individuals, we can change the way we live, we can change the decisions we make, and that can help us to develop a healthy microbiome that improves our overall health. And have you been peer-reviewed and all those things by the scientific community as well? I, I have personally sent copies of my chapters to many, many scientists who've reviewed it and been very positive about what I've written and how I've represented their work. So you are actually making a contribution to scientific discussion as well as... I'd like to think so, yeah. Else. I mean, it's, it's all based on scientific research that's been published and peer-reviewed, and I don't stray from that. And when I talk about things anecdotally, I make it clear that they're not evidence-based and they're anecdotes. This is your first book, Fred. This is your 14th or 15th or 16th or 100th book, isn't it? You're very prolific. I'm I'm not very good at counting, yes. (laughs) Have you written this to impress the scientific community or is it written for people like me and listeners to this? Oh, absolutely. No, it's not written for the scientific community. You know, I'm I'm trying to translate science into things that the rest of us can understand. What I think that writers like me, um, I mean, I I really want to read Alana's book. I mean, I I must say I'm absolutely fascinated. And I think what we all try and do is connect things up because scientists do get very in their, their little silos and they're working and they, they should be, they're working to, on very narrow agendas to really focus on particular points, particular questions and answer those questions. And people like us are sort of standing back and say, well, if they're saying that and they're saying that, well, what about this and how does that fit together? And we kind of start a conversation about these things. So I was comparing the new thinking about ecology and how ecosystems work, that they're much more dynamic and changing than we thought before and putting that together with the research done by a whole other set of people about whether alien species are really as nasty as we thought and you suddenly you put the two together and you think you know there's a contribution to be made here we're not doing brand new science but we're linking things up and making those connections and I think for people especially writing at book length whether we're journalists or academics with a sort of wide view of the world that's really really important 
including for the academics who will often come back and say, do you know I hadn't thought about connecting those things up? Or I can talk about this in my lectures, or this will help students understand what's going on. And they kind of mean this will help me understand what's going on. Uh, yeah, absolutely. The, um, many of the scientists that I've interviewed about their specific work have said to me how excited they are to read the book and to know more. And they've asked me what I've learned from other areas of the science that's going on. And the great thing about writing a book like this is that you can put the science into a context, a social context, a political context and a historical context. And that gives it so much more life that makes it so much more relevant to us and gives us an understanding of where we are so it's great science and it's really interesting but by putting it into this context you can see that in fact we're going through a revolution that's equivalent to the germ theory revolution where we suddenly realized that microbes were at the root of infectious disease and that changes the way we can treat them that changes the way we drink water how we deal with sewage all those kinds of things that happened 150 years ago, we're going through a revolution in health that's the equivalent to that now, and it's only by putting it into the bigger picture that you see that. Fred Pierce's The New Wild is published in the UK by Icon, and Alana Collins' 10% Human is out from William Collins. If you're looking for more literary discussion, you can join the debate on the podcast page on our Guardian Books website, or subscribe for free on iTunes, or follow us on SoundCloud, or indeed, stick us on your smartphone. Just start up your favourite podcast app and search for Guardian Books Podcast. Thanks to Fred Pierce, Alana Collin and Claire Armitstead. From me, Richard Lee, and our producer, Eva Krizjak, see you next week. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.